Hello, and welcome to You Should Watch This with Ed and Simon, the film podcast in which two friends explore a galaxy of neglected movie masterpieces. Each episode, one of the boys presents an overlooked film they love and tries to convince the other of its misunderstood genius. Okay, this is Ed and Simon. The film I'm pitching to you right now is The Brothers Bloom by Ryan Johnson, made in 2008. Ryan Johnson is a very successful, brilliant filmmaker. He made Brick, the sort of Philip Marlowe high school thing with Justin Gordon-Levitt. He made Looper with Justin Gordon-Levitt again and Bruce Willis, which was a massive hit, and The Last Jedi. So obviously this guy is doing very well. He certainly doesn't need promotion <laughs> from this bedroom that we're sat in right now in Walthamstow. <laughs> However... He has one horse in the stable that didn't run. Yeah. 2008's The Brothers Bloom was pretty much ignored or panned when it came out. It's sort of the only dud, you would say, commercially that he's, that he's had, but it's, um, for me, actually my favourite movie of his. It's a con movie, it's got a fantastic cast, Mark Ruffalo, Adrian Brody, Rachel Weisz. It's very stylized, very funny, uh, very silly con movie in which you're constantly questioning the reality of what you're seeing and yet within that it also tells a very moving and touching love story. No mean feat. Lots of people probably think he didn't pull it off. I do. So I'm looking forward to see what you make of this. I haven't got around to watching it so looking forward to correcting that and watching The Brothers Bloom. Okay, you've heard the pitch, so before Ed and Simon discuss it, now might be a good time to watch the movie if you haven't already. Links are available on youshouldwatchthis.com, or you can listen on anyway, but be warned. As well as stuff like this... Like, as a slight aside, he can throw a playing card and stick it in a watermelon. There will be a ton of spoilers. Okay, so... Simon, you have just watched The Brothers Bloom, and by the look on your face, <laughs> my guess is it didn't quite land for you the way it landed for me. I think the difficulty about this podcast as a whole is saying that you're putting out something that's quite personal to you. You say it's one of your favourite films, or favorite, your favourite Ryan Johnson film. It is one of my favourite films, but I will laugh if you take shots at it. There was something, I, I don't know if it was missing or I just wasn't able to perceive what was going on. That mm-hmm. if, if you lay out its bare bones, everything about it should be something that I'd enjoy. I really like Adrian Brody. I really like Mark Ruffalo. I like Rachel Weisz. I like the style of the film. I really like the dialogue that Ryan Johnson writes. I love a heist film. It's got cameos from uh, Ricky Jay, who's the narrator, who's a fantastic actor and a magician. And... I love sort of somewhat twee, whimsical, fantastical films, but I also know that I can go and watch a Wes Anderson film. And the overriding thought, I don't know if it was intentional from the, say, the, the fonts that was, were used in the intertitles to the sort of the soundtrack of, like, you know, British Invasion, 60s pop or whatever that's, it's popping up. I just felt like I'd been here before and that this was a somewhat inferior version of a Wes Anderson film. Whoa. Okay. <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> but, okay, that's really interesting to me and I think we should definitely get into that because I think what we're talking about is why this film didn't yeah. connect with people. 
It's like an adventure story. What's the con? We go to St. Petersburg to be our guys in a phony setup who then double-cross us and kill us all. She drives off on the run from imaginary Russians. And we keep her money. How much? 2.5 million. You're a genius, Stephen. I'll put my hands up and say, when I saw the trailer to this film, mm. I remember thinking, what a dumb trailer, that looks like a really shit Wes Anderson yeah. movie. But I really understand the, the connection people make. And this, you know, the second you're looking at people artfully dishevelled in designer clothes and Rachel Weisz in a sort of kooky bowler hat and all that stuff, it's a very easy comparison to draw. And, and I think that's probably why this film suffered. But I think this film's concerns and the ambition of this film are so much more complex and interesting and high-reaching than pretty much any Wes Anderson movie I can think of. I'm not saying it's as fun or as enjoyable as those movies, mm. but its ambitions are really, really high. The brothers bloom that out on their own to make their fortune as gentlemen thieves. Sounds romantic. It does. It uses the con caper movie to explore some really big, complex, difficult ideas from a lot of interesting angles. This is sort of like a conversation. totally agree and it's hard it's definitely not a Wes Anderson film but when you talk about these these extra levels and and I'd be interested to know what you think because I've only seen it once is like if it gets more rewarding from a repeat viewing because there is something about the very intricate twisty nature of the plot you know like all heist films where you're like wait a minute am I being conned now or you know are are they leaving a bit specifically to trick us and some of that's quite fast-paced that I I was like am I missing something here Then I didn't know if it was in trying to sort of keep up with this plot, am I also seeing these sort of chimes of the, the emotional layers that are being added into it? So, you know, at its heart, it's a story about two brothers and one brother who is desperately trying to be in control of his own story. I've only ever lived life through these roles that aren't me, that are written for me by you. Tell me what you want. Why? So you can write me a role in a story where I get it? You're not listening to me. That's something that I did enjoy, but I felt like, am I stupid for having missed something? Yeah. Uh, Yeah, and I think a lot of people had that response. And once you get that feeling, then it's easy to disconnect from the story you're watching. Mm -hmm. But for me, that's one of the the massive joys of this film, of like, there's always information being withheld from you. Mm -hmm. Because that's how con movies work, right? If we, the audience member, go to see a con movie... I want to be surprised. I want to have the rug pulled out for me at least once or twice. And so you go in there with that expectation. I mean, Ocean's Eleven, that ending, as dumb as it is, uh, is actually awesome because you don't see it coming and you go, okay, that's what you really want. You don't actually really want them to rob the bank, although you do. What you really want them to do is rob the bank in a way that you never could have anticipated. And and so they play this game throughout the whole thing of you you don't actually know what's going on. Once you marry that sort of plot that leaves the audience in the dark for lots of it, or ask them to take a lot of faith with the sort of stylized, slightly, glib is not the right word, but slightly obscure jokes and references that this film is completely packed with, then then I can see how it can be alienating. But like you say, if that was your experience of this film, I would absolutely recommend going back to watch it again because what is underneath it is, um, is actually a pretty rock-solid story about 
Well, there's a love story, of, obviously, but really of, of fraternal love, of one brother trying to look after the other one. And so, I, I mean, I, I would recommend going back to it. Oh. Your name's Melville. Really? Yeah. Because I noticed before, but I couldn't place it. This ship is called the Fidel, which is um, the name of the ship in Melville's novel, The Confidence Man. So that's weird. I, I had never read that. I've read a couple of interviews with Ryan Johnson around this, and, and what he was saying is the thing that attracted him to the sort of con genre in the first place was exactly the thing I was just saying about an audience expecting to to be conned themselves and sort of being on their guard slightly about what they're watching. But And how do you tell a love story within that? How do you ask people to commit to a love story in, the, in a world where they know they shouldn't really be trusting anyone? Because if every woman is a femme fatale, then why, why the hell would you fall in love with her? Because you know she's going to betray you. Which I think is something that plays really nicely in this film. They set up Stephen's, like his sort of style of con really quickly. So, uh, where are we? The largest private residence on the eastern seaboard, home of our final mark. Penelope Stamp, 33. Lived at home her whole life. An eccentric shut-in rich bitch? You're not helping your case. She's bored. When you meet her, and they even say in the film, she feels like a character from one of your cons. She yeah. fits right into that very clearly. And so you're, the experience of watching it for me was going, oh, when, is it, when are they going to reveal that she's, that she's actually part of this? Yeah. Which is, of course, which is Adrian Brody's character's entire thing. Like, can I trust this woman? Is this legit? Oh, so this is the big plan, huh? Lure me back in with some beautiful, intriguing, elusive girl. <clears throat> Seriously, Stephen, amateur night. I think it's a very difficult thing to pull off, and I think they do it really well. Whether whether an audience is, is, is interested in watching that, I don't know. Probably not the first time, because it's actually hard to wrap your head around, I think, especially when you're kind of scrambling for all sorts of things. I just got completely turned off when Rachel Weiss is this millionaire who lives a total loner existence in her massive mansion, and there's a montage of all the skills that she has yeah. learned. juggling chainsaws from that point forward I found any interaction between her and Adrian Brody's character I was just like I don't know if I buy it like something just it just didn't land for me that, that what they were doing there. that's interesting because what we've just come to is the exact point of the film we're going to show you something that is a complete artifice that is a total confection and you are going to like it anyway mm. something that you know is not real yeah. you will be moved by which is the entire premise of all heist movies and is exactly what the Brothers Blue are doing in this film anyway. I feel like I should come clean and say, in my day job, I'm a screenwriter. So a film about storytelling and about the efforts in trying to make things appear real that are completely fake and that are, that are built, that is, that is something that I have a big interest in. You don't understand what my brother does. He writes his cons the way dead Russians write novels with thematic arcs and embedded symbolism and shit. And he wrote me as the vulnerable anti-hero. And that's why you think you want to kiss me. 
The constant investigation of the way that we tell stories uh, and people tell stories to themselves and how that is actually a way that we understand the world and the sort of the central idea that that Bloom wants an unwritten life but he can't even describe it as that he doesn't know how to describe it as that unless his brother does it for him I want a real thing I, 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 I want to I just I want I want You want an unwritten life? I want an unwritten life. For me, that's a really interesting character because stories are how we understand ourselves and how we understand everything that's happened before us. And this is constantly interrogating that fact because at the same time, stories are, can be lies and can be fiction. And how do, you, how do you live in a world where you constantly have to be making stories, building yourself with stories, and how do you make sure they're the right stories? Which is in the middle of this film and is, and is kind of a weird esoteric thing to stick in a in a con movie bloom i know i'm pretending to be a smuggler right but what you don't know is i am a full-on smuggler because i tell it like i own it I really love the, the way that in a lot of con films, you know, you can go back to Ocean's Eleven and say these guys almost, you know, can see into the future because they know how people are going to behave and the actions they will take. And I did like the way that Mark Ruffalo's character can almost predict everything that his brother is going to do. Yeah, well, and, and this is a basic thing of screenwriting as well about framing the question, which is the same as in cons. They're trying to push their characters to these particular decisions and the moments of those decisions are completely shaped by... Mm. the journey they've taken them on to get there, which is exactly how screenwriting works. The thing you get your character to do in the present is to do with how you've shaped the argument of your script beforehand. It's also just cool to watch. Like The analysis of that with Andy Nyman right at the beginning of that very first... Con. The very first con where where he's in the burning house. Wow! Wow is the word you're looking for! Wow! You're a genius, Stephen. We're genius, Bloom. Now, in defense of that shit-eating grin on my older brother's face, what he just pulled off was pretty amazing. He hinged the entire con on this question. Would Charleston, or Spineless Mark, would he actually pull that trigger? Maybe. But Stephen wanted better odds. He positioned me in the same spot where six years ago Charleston's wife had stood and told him she was leaving. He picked my suit to match her outfit. He even phonetically matched my final words to hers. This is the end, Charleston. You've always been such a dumbass. So in the end, everyone gets everything he wants. <laughs> that whole analysis is yeah. really fun because that's what we like about con movies, mm-hmm. but also... So this is a jaded guy yeah. who he feels like he's seen all the moves yeah. and nothing makes sense to him anymore. I would say the point in which I was most hopeful that I was absolutely going to love it was the scene in the bar where the, all the cast of characters yeah. they've gone. And I love the, the thing that Quentin Tarantino says about good film, that re-watching a film and you love is like hanging out with good friends. Make way, make room for the Brothers Bloom! Yeah, yeah. All right, here we go. Gather around, friends and accomplices. 
And then in that bar, when there's so many people who helped them along the way, and I just felt these are a good, interesting group of people. I want to learn more about these, especially the main characters. And I hope there's more of this sort of wacky japery (laughs) going on throughout. And then when you do see Adrian Brody, as you say, you know, he's mopey, he's jaded. That was another point where I I became slightly less interested in it. Because you have all the razzmatazz and the fun, and maybe a, a different con movie and a different filmmaker would have gone down like why all these people are interesting and fascinating. But we're meeting Bloom at a point where he's sick of that world and none of it means anything to him, and it's part of his sort of the ongoing circus that his brother seems to be satisfied by. Whatever bit of his personality or his world that he's yeah. in has kind of run its course for him because none of it is is meaning anything, which I think is is a is a really universal thing for anyone, especially for young men. I think mm. you get all these. <laughs> all the sort of tricks and stuff that you pick up in your 20s to be a certain way yeah. the challenges as you get older are completely different and you know slightly less superficial mm-hmm. and, and actually a lot of the stuff that you learn probably gets in the way of actually adapting to your to, you know, to getting older and uh, I think that's just quite a nice universal entry point oh, I can't I can't, I can't wake up next to another person who thinks they know me I'm 35 years old. I don't... I, I, I'm, I'm useless. It might be worth talking about the brothers a bit because I think that's the real relationship in the middle of the film. They've built a world together. Stephen, the Mark Ruffalo character, has obviously done you know, most of the heavy lifting, but it's one brother wanting to leave the other one. Wanting to saying this doesn't work for me anymore, and kind of believing he's got the run of his brother in a way emotionally. For me, the real heart of this movie and that, that I find incredibly moving is right at the end when Mark Ruffalo says to me, "You are the only audience I ever needed." Pick a card. All right, got it. <laughs> That's the best card trick I've ever seen. Wish you had a bigger audience. You're the only audience I ever needed. And actually, it has never been about the con for Mark Ruffalo. It's always been about making something for his brother and sharing something for his brother. I mean, this might be a good time to get into deeper personal stuff because... Uh, not my personal. <laughs> I was God. about to say. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> there's a there's a few deleted scenes from this film that are quite interesting, and part of me thinks, well, they're deleted, so you know we shouldn't bring them into this. But actually, it does kind of illuminate, I think, the sort of intentions behind this film a lot. There's a very shocking storyline involving the Diamond Dog, who obviously features in the film, and and the whole storyline is hinted at. The intention going into shooting this was that it's very clear that the Adrian Brody character has been sexually abused by the Diamond Dog character, Maximilian Shell. You two kicked around until your early teens, ending up in the grotty outskirts of St. Petersburg, where you learned the big con from an old-school grifter named the Diamond Dog. Is that true? That was his name? Yeah. And he was your mentor. But I get the sense it ended badly. Stephen took his eye out with an antique rapier. So Bloom has been abused by this guy and that Stephen is his protector. The whole sort of construction of all these big elaborate scams and all this stuff 
it's about taking control of your story because that's the real horror of those crimes that you're sort of altered by them. Uh, and there's just something incredibly beautiful about a brother going like someone altered your reality in this way and I'm going to try and alter it back in this other way. But is he trying to alter the reality, or is he setting up a reality that's completely closed and controlled, like I say, where, yeah. where people could be actors? It's within a set of parameters that he is in charge of. Mm. Saying, so these are, we, we're going to be in quote-unquote dangerous situations, yeah. but we're going to be you know, making sure that everything happens in the way in which we want it to. I, I do think there's value to that. And I am curious to know why that was removed or, you know, why they took it out. I think it comes back to the tone of this film because it's sort of, there's a few big tonal shifts in it anyway. It promises this sort of, yeah, whimsy uh, Wes Anderson thing. Although, I mean, using Wes Anderson as a, I think, (laughs) Wes Anderson's not allowed to sort of own, uh, like, well, not whimsy, but just those sort of Hal Ashby. Well, he's he's a total product of, you know, five or six different things that he definitely did not invent. Yeah, it's a, it's a little cruel to just go, he's a, he's the only one who's allowed to sort of <laughs> yeah. mix, dash together a bit of Fellini and Hal Ashby and, yeah. you know, and slap some uh, cool music on top. Miles from nowhere Guess I'll take my time Oh, yeah To reach there we're talking about the film as a heist film and other heist films. So something I really love about this is that it's it's all, it's about the construction, it's about the building, it's about the confection, the making of things. So there's lots of references to magic, as you mentioned. Ricky Jay does the opening voiceover. Ricky Jay, I think, was supposed to play the Robbie Coltrane character, but was unable to right to be in it. But okay. He the, the voiceover at the start. Yeah. So Ricky Jay, if you don't know him, he's an American magician who is incredibly well respected in his field and who also has popped up in quite a few David Mamet David Mamet who is obsessed with con movies and and how they work a brilliant screenwriter obviously it sort of it all sort of joins up Ricky Jay is in Heist which is a great heist movie and he's in Spanish Prisoner which is like which is a con movie absolutely Uh, fantastic film how that sits with the, the beginning that sort of poetry thing I think is really interesting because you couldn't get a more stylized carefully in terms of how the filmmaker presents this world there's music yeah. it's in poetry it's like it couldn't be more drawing attention to the artifice of itself as far as conman stories go i think i've heard them all of grifters ropers pharaoh fixers tales drawn long and tall but if one bears a bookmark in the confidence man's tone it would be that of penelope and of the brothers balloon everything is so cut together but it's so seductive like we the audience want to be swept along with that even though what you're looking at (laughs) there's not Ken Loach at no point are you going I believe these people are real but still you're moved and that's the interesting thing so on Ricky Jay you should definitely look him up on YouTube and watch Ricky Jay and his 52 assistants and once again I'm going to try to do what's called dead cutting an ace to reach down into this part of the deck and cut out another ace. By the way, this is also something I practice left-handed. That's in case someone breaks my right thumb. So <laughs> let me try to cut the ace of spades for you. Left-handed, oh, lucky me. There's too many things are uh, card magic, right. and he's also a magical historian. And if you watch his, it's quite old now, and it's a little bit dated, a little bit fuzzy if you watch it on YouTube, but he's a, an amazing raconteur. And as he's performing these card tricks, which are incredible, 
like as a slight aside, he can throw a playing card and stick it in a watermelon, and I think he holds the world record for distance. But <laughs> as he he will he will say like, this is what I am doing. I am now going to look like I'm dealing from the top, but I'm actually taking the card from the bottom, and he will explain the the sort of the law of it. At like right. L-O-R-E and the history of magic and explain what he's doing and then add another layer in the perfect con style of this is what I'm doing yeah. this is another way I can do it and here's the third way which is impressing coming. you and didn't see you coming yeah. so that's why Ricky Jay is obviously very well associated with with these kind of films especially in The Spanish Prisoner which is a film I can watch again and again yeah. and again well, and he's obviously here to sort of set a very clear tone about what to expect. And, and actually, there's, he's not the only magician. There's Andy Nyman, yep. who's also in the first ten minutes. He's the guy who runs out that they come, first yeah. of all. Charleston, what have you done? Oh, my God. The man named Charleston that you met four months and a thousand years ago in a hotel bar in Jampur is dead. If we see each other again, it'll be as strangers. Is it real? Is it not? Does it... Can you be talked through being manipulated mm. step by step and yet still feel something is exactly... I mean, Christopher Nolan is obsessed with this theme. Mm. You see him come back to it time and time again with Inception, with the prestige. Yeah. You don't want to know how the trick is done, like, yeah. which, is, which is exactly at the heart of this. You still want to be moved. You want to be manipulated and moved. Okay, so we've, we've spoken a bit about Ricky Jay. We briefly mentioned him, Diamond Dog, the character of Diamond Dog, who looks ridiculous, and yet is this sort of eerie presence throughout. You don't really see him, but part of the way he looks like I don't know if he's got like a, a dang, you know dangly earrings. He, he looks like a, a pirate from the future, or you know, in some sort of weird imagining of what the future looked like in 1997. Diamond Dog, carrying a cup and a cane. Bloom. Bloom, bloom, bloom. Been a long time, huh? If I call Stephen down here, he'll kill you. Look, you're, you're terrified. Huh? Don't be scared. I'm an old man. That was just another aspect that I couldn't, couldn't really get on board with. Right. Um, you didn't buy him as a, <laughs> did you didn't buy him as a baddie or as like a believable person <laughs> yeah I didn't think he looked like anything I'd ever seen before when he's gone remember me I, I don't get it right <laughs> like, like I don't get it and then I have like the mild paranoia of is that because he's not smart enough to get it? Watch it again. So I look back at a couple of reviews that came out, and a lot of you know really smart critics dismissed it because they felt exactly what you felt, and which maybe I felt the first time I watched it. I can't remember. I've seen it so many times. Which is yeah. What, why, why am I not getting this? But there's lots in this film that is to get, and there's lots of stuff that's really fun that you don't get. He, he kind of addresses this in that one of my favourite lines of the movie, where they go, "I don't know how she did that." When Rachel Vice get, yeah. when she gets out of the castle in Prague somehow and they don't know how 
I have, at different points in my life, quite literally sold ice to an Eskimo and sand to an Arab, but I have no idea what you could have said to that man to have sweet-talked her way out of that castle. In any other film, that would be a massive plot point. How, does, how, do they, how do they solve this thing? Because the worst possible thing that could have happened yeah. has happened, and they just go, no, she's fine. And, and, and he goes, I don't know how she did that. And Raging Brady goes, well... I could ask her. How obtuse. And it's, it's so brilliant. It's like, that's not... The how is not important. Just enjoy, enjoy the mystery. When they begin the beginning, it brings back the sound of music If you can commit to enjoying the mystery and yet still be pulled along with enough emotionally, that's the whole title of this thing is walking. But it feels like you probably it, you, it fell off quite early for you. Well, I guess in any first watching of a film, or you know, it's so much from that initial emotional reaction. Like I said, there's those two or three points throughout where I'm just like creating a distance between myself and the yeah. film and these characters, and then the sort of the idea that there's this silent Asian female sidekick who just chain smokes. Bang bang! Yeah. She's our fifth beetle. So she's with you and bloom till the end, uh, till the wind changes. which yeah. is the second time you've recommended a film on this podcast with a silent female Asian chain smoking in Southland Tales. Okay. I don't know that's if that's a, a thing. And, and also like you didn't like it either. either. <laughs> but also your second Mark Ruffalo film as well. So oh, I, don't I know. love Mark Ruffalo. Yeah. I mean, he, he's amazing. Her backstory is they, they did one con with her she and she showed up yeah. and then she sort of never left. A few years back when we hit the top of our uh, smuggling game, she just appeared. And we figure someday she'll just disappear. And then she does sort of disappear or is killed or yeah. vanishes. I wonder, is she the, is she the flashpoint measure? Because I sort of think, I like that character because you just have to enjoy the fact that, that she's a mystery. Mm. And if you can't enjoy the mystery, then this film is not working. Do you know why Ryan Johnson made her silent? Why? Because he said his, in his first film, Brick, he didn't want to rely too much on dialogue. And he wanted to see if he could write a character who was completely mute and see if he could like express right. personality and things in other ways. I went back and watched Brick and I remember watching it the first time and I don't know if this is just essentially I'm dedicating a podcast to proving that I'm just an ignorant person. But <laughs> there's so much dialogue in that and it's using so many, like the lexicon is so specific to this hardball detective thing that I just, a lot of it went over my head. Pin's kind of a local spook store. You know the kingpin. I've heard it. Same thing. Ask any dope right where the junk sprang, and they'll say they scraped it off that, who scored it off this, who bought it off so, and after four or five connections, the list always ends with a pin. But I bet you got every rat in town together and said, show your hands if any of them actually seen the pin, and you get a crowd of full pockets. And I think that was like kind of the point of it. You're not supposed to know what 1920s yeah. Chicago slang for heroin is or, yeah. or something like that. So Brick was a massive success, and that's a complete artifice as well. It couldn't be trying harder to remind you it's not real. Mm. These high because school kids are speaking like they're out of a, you know, a Raymond Chandler novel. Yeah, and, and they're that... dealing heroin and solving murders. Yeah, and... right. But it works. Yeah. For me, there's just a direct line between this film and that film. This is just a bit more ambitious and crazy mm. and sort of sweeping and, and, and less simple, I suppose, mm. which is maybe why people don't get sort of brought into it as, mm. as, as clearly. The film after this was Looper, which is another film about people trying to control or change 
their narrative and their destiny about um... the control thing that that's that's interesting so you saying a lot about me no it's not well it is and about me because that's not something i'd really considered but then i'm the oldest of three brothers and, and you've the youngest you're the and i think that's something about brothers siblings being the one who gets to dictate the rules of the game because i because i hadn't even you that that particular voice. element of the control is not something that had yeah. registered with me to the controlling nature although it's obviously the, you know central to the story it's not something that clicked with me in an emotional way as it, as it clearly did with you because it's kind of like for me I played in goal because, <laughs> as in for like, like nine years of my life oh god and that was because my brothers always made me go in goal yeah but I don't know if that was the point you were making but no yeah. no that's exactly the point <laughs> so, this, so this is a movie about Bloom not wanting to be in goal anymore that's what they should have called it <laughs> that's the Hang on, what? Of, so what is the title? <laughs> Bloom doesn't want to be in goal anymore. <laughs> I never want to think about it in this way, but it's uh, or any sort of film. But like, how do you market it? Well, but that's it, a, that's a really a valid sell. It is such a hard sell. Yeah, is it a comedy? Because I think it's really funny. But uh, and they tried to. I think they tried to sell it. I remember hating the trailer when I saw it. I think it was a sort of a whimsical comedy that they mm. sold it. But you can make a case for like a proper, a proper con movie. I mean, what's the closest? Dirty Rotten Scoundrels. I that, love Dirty Rotten Scoundrels. That's a con movie with a love story that is that is seen as a comedy. We're in that territory, but we're just you know way more complex. Than yeah, that. but it is really hard, or you know, doing a comedy about people who are essentially being disingenuous and ripping people off, right? How can someone be likable yeah. if they are a confidence trickster? They're they're literally exploiting people for money yeah but unless you sort of set it in this world of like in dirty rotten scoundrels they're only doing it to rich old yeah. women in monte carlo or george clooney only robs evil benedict the casino owner yeah. which is in itself a complete confection yeah. and, and lie but that's yeah. it's just it's the lie that tells the truth it's the lie that allows you to enjoy the story i only saw it yesterday but logan lucky there is one line in it which when they are trying to coerce somebody to join their plot, he says, I'm a Christian, so I need a moral reason to do this. And they, they create this very convoluted reason. He's like, okay, yeah, I'm in. And, and that was a film that has comic elements in it, and but they're really, they're like, no, it's not some sort of only going after someone who can afford it and who is evil for just stealing money. Right. That sort of shot through this. There's that yeah. beautiful bit with the story that Rachel Weiss is telling. She's doing the card trick and it's all in one yeah. take and yeah. she's talking and she's yeah. telling a story. Exactly. Which is kind of like the whole movie condensed into, into one, one scene. Yeah. Like You're being swept along by this story, you're being swept along by this card trick. Do you believe the story? Do you trust her? What was your childhood like? Lonely? When I was five, I got really bad rashes and allergies and hay fever. So my mom took me to the doctor, and he did that test. I was allergic to everything. And I spent the rest of my childhood and adolescence indoors, alone. Lonely. No. It wasn't until I was 19 they discovered what I was actually allergic to was the aluminum alloy the hypodermic needles were made out of. That sounds a lot like yeah. the Ricky J thing. You were I really think everyone should watch Ricky J's <laughs> 52 Assistants. I can watch it. I have watched it a lot. It does look really beautiful and very interestingly, well, I think it was a film totally shot 
around Eastern Europe. So when they go to the mansion, that was like just some mansion in Romania or somewhere. Right. It was it was made very cheaply, and yeah. I did like the aspects of it that you're going to these gorgeous older Eastern European cities, and you know the architecture is absolutely stunning. That's all part of the glamour, right? Of the sort of faded, slightly dangerous yeah. world that 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 is so fun to be escorted into. A bit like Grand Budapest Hotel. Oh, sorry. Grand. Okay. There are some. There are some Wes Anderson movies I love. Grand Budapest Hotel should never even be screened in the same cinema as anything that had this wonderful film in. I think Grand Budapest Hotel is. I, I don't want to over-egg it, but I've watched it so many times and I love that film more than life itself. I know that's... Oh what don't you like about Grand Budapest Hotel? If you are... Okay. This no, is, this no, is, I'm really worried now that you're going to pull this apart in a way that... No, 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 because it's about intention and it's about tone and it's, and it's sort of why I really like this film because I think this film can back it up. I think this film can actually properly explore an idea intellectually and morally mm. and you know, it might not be clearly articulated on the first viewing, but that that interrogation is actually happening. Whereas, while I love a lot of early Wes Anderson films, his films seem to be getting a bit more superficial as he goes on and, and stylized and all, that, all the stuff that you love, all the stuff that is exactly what you want to see in his films. But basically, if you're going to make a movie about the Nazis, make them Nazis. Don't come up with comedy fake Nazis. In a movie called The Grand Budapest Hotel, if you're going to, if you're going to talk about what happened in that part of the world in World War II, actually talk about it. Don't give them stupid logos. Don't make them all comedy-lovable guys. Mm. Sorry, I'm getting angry even talking about it. I've, I've been ejected from parties for exactly this, <laughs> so I'm going to put the microphone down. Part of why we do this podcast and why we talk about these films is I'm enjoying finding that point with you. And as we go on and as we you know pitch films to watch to each other part of me is thinking this is personal to me i like yeah. this and then i want to put that out there to test seeing the blank face you gave me when you watched fletch which is like, which is <laughs> like my firstborn child so uh, no, no, no. that's really interesting to me because i can just that's not something that i picked up on when i watched grand budapest hotel but i can just watch that film and i feel like i as soon as i start watching it i feel like I am back to this tone and I'm comfortable with it and it is maybe superficial but I like it. It's like it's like chicken soup. And when to compare it to the film that we originally started talking about and that I got from the second I first started watching Grand Budapest Hotel. Yeah. But when I started watching this I didn't know where I was. I didn't yeah. know what was ha- I'm like, why are you doing that? That just seems weird. And, and I guess that's exactly what you're saying. I'm talking about control and trying to make sense of yeah. something from this. But I couldn't. I mean, that's all con movies is about withholding information and the filmmaker having complete control over what information you have and also what questions you are asking. Yeah, maybe in this film there's just like a few too many questions that the audience has at any given moment for to sweep people along. But repeated viewings will answer a lot of those questions and still leave you with new questions that you wanna that you wanna get into. Can I just talk about some of the brilliantly quotable lines yeah, in this film as well? Exactly. There's some I mean there's some absolutely lovely, lovely gags in there. Holy shit. That's my new favorite camel. <laughs> How obtuse, that's just yeah. that's a really good one. Easily deployable in your day-to-day life as well. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
another bit that happens in Prague as well. Last time I was in Prague, I was in love. What was she like? Pale skin, long feet. So. <laughs> and that's kind of, I'd love that. That's really funny, but it's also, that's within the film, right? Of like, yeah. there's this bit of information, this bit of information, and I'm expecting you to draw a line that connects them. It's, uh, yeah. So, you wouldn't program this in a double bill for anyone, but if you, if you were going to screen this with something, what would you put it with? I would have to put this with Dirty Rotten Scoundrels, another mm -hmm. heist film. I love Steve Martin of this era of the film <laughs> Dirty Rotten Scoundrels. I like Rotten. talking about Dirty Rotten Scoundrels. <laughs> we're not talking about Steve. I'm thinking more and more every time I watch a film about what time of day or day of the week I want to watch it. And Dirty Rotten Scoundrels is like the balm that can be applied on a Sunday evening before like the terror of going back to work. <laughs> and I feel that is the replenishing balm that can follow watching The Brothers Bloom so that you can watch it with Dirty Rotten Scoundrels. It's not that it's that bad, it's just, I don't know. I will re-watch it, I promise. Okay. For me, uh, I think... Ooh. It's, it's unique, this film. There's no obvious, for me, no obvious direct references. I think it would sit very nicely next to The Prestige, though. Yeah. A film about tricks, a film about a film about why tricks and stories are seductive and uh, and dangerous and necessary. That's, a good, that's definitely a good pairing. Well, we learnt a lot <laughs> about each other, about control, about brothers. <laughs> um. Thank you for listening. You Should Watch This is hosted by Ed Heim and Simon Fowler, produced by David Craigie, Ed Heim and Simon Fowler. It's edited by David Craigie, who also creates the theme music. I'm Kerry Hall and I play the voice of a much-needed woman. Be sure to rate and subscribe to You Should Watch This wherever you get your podcasts. Follow us on Twitter on at watchthispod or find out more on youshouldwatchthis.com.